Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today for The Stacks Book Club, we are discussing Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. Our guest is the wonderful Jordan Moblo, who is back to help us break down this book. And don't worry, no spoilers this week. Before we get to it, let's do a little housekeeping. All right, here it is, your weekly reminder. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. There is a link there that will take you to all the books discussed today, as well as the social media accounts for The Stacks and our guests. Plus, if you shop through the links on Amazon, you're helping to keep The Stacks free. If you're looking for an amazing book recommendation, send us an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com. Myself and my guest will read it on air, discuss it, and then give you a personalized book recommendation or five. So email askingthestacks at gmail.com with your name, what you're looking for, and maybe a few titles you've loved or hated. If you like the stacks and want to support the work we're doing, here are a few easy ways you can help. First of all, join us over on Patreon. That's a website where you support the work we're doing and earn perks for yourself. We've got a virtual book club. We got inside access to the show and we have an amazing community of other readers who love the podcast. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join in. The last thing you can do to help the show is definitely the easiest. Subscribe to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends friends and family about the show. It goes a really long way to helping us reach new audiences. All right, here it is, my spoiler-free conversation with Jordan Movlo about Gia Tolentino's essay collection, Trick Mirror. All right, you guys, I am back again this week with Jordan Movlo. Jordan, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Yay. Today for the Stacks Book Club, we are discussing Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion by Gia Tolentino. The book is her collection of essays that is sort of, I mean, here's how she describes it in the book. This is what she says the book is. These essays are about the spheres of public imagination that have shaped my understanding of myself, of this country, and of this era. And it's pretty much focuses on women, feminist. She's kind of like the millennial Rebecca Solnit, if you will. Oh, yeah. Didn't you kind of feel like that? Yeah. Okay. That's a good description. Yeah. If you don't know what that means, I can't help you any further. That's like <laughs> that's like what I got to. That's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't know, Rebecca Solnit is, uh, she writes about feminism and she's been doing it for a long, long time. Um, okay. We always start here. What did you think of the book? Kind of generally. I was a little intimidated going into it because I'd read reviews and she's an amazing writer. And I actually, I loved it. I thought it was really provocative and eye-opening and interesting. I mean, I didn't relate to all of the essays, but I think I found something relatable or interesting in almost all of them that was, it felt topical and relevant. And a lot of the themes that I think that we're all exploring and thinking about today, that was exciting. I mean, what did you think? Um, so I, I like the book. I had a really hard time getting into it. Mm. The first like three or four essays, I just was like, I was struggling with her writing style. I couldn't quite figure out. I'd never read her before. Yeah. So I was like a little bit like, Ooh, I don't know. And then later it got so good. Like the first half of the first, like 
four essays took me forever. And then the rest of the book, I was like, yes, yes, scammers, let's go. I was like, marriage, let's talk about it. Um, I also felt like I am just, I was so impressed by the sheer number of references in this book. Yeah. Like all of her cultural knowledge, it just felt like such a time capsule of like 2017 to 2019. And I'm really curious to see in 10 years if this, what this book is, if it even is something that people talk about, if she's put out 10 more books that are like more time cap. Like I'm just very curious about her and the future of this book. Well, it's interesting because I've been, I've been so interested in books that explore this idea of inheritance and what are we inheriting from previous generations Mm. and what are we passing down to the next generation? So I think a lot of her, her essays have to do with that idea. Like her comparing Britney Spears to like relevant authors and poets and feminists of like the past generation. And you're like, are we going to think of Britney Spears as like a feminist icon? Like Sylvia Plath. Yeah. I was like, this is a reach, but I'm here for it. I'm like, yes, first of all, but also (laughs) maybe. Uh, Yeah, no, it's true. She, I think one of the things that she does so well throughout all of the essays, even the ones that I couldn't quite find my way into is she finds really different things seemingly and ties them together beautifully. Yeah. Like I think that the the ecstasy essay, which was about music and religion and drugs, which was probably one that I felt like I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> but I was like music and religion and, and drugs and, and yeah. like and chopped and screwed. I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm kind of here for this. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm fully here for wherever this is going. Oh, I was definitely down like a little bit of a Google rabbit hole several yeah. times throughout. Like. <laughs> but it's like in her, like they're in the back of the book, the books for reference, yeah. like reading for reference. You could read, I mean, she's like you, she probably reads a billion books a year. Oh, and I definitely have like a small list of several of the things she listed and named in this book as like to add to my reading to my good read i was like okay let me add some of those and then every time she would reference something that i had read i was like i'm a genius sorry that i write for the new yorker agree i agree (laughs) (laughs) just a smart women over here sorry i'm so smart gia (laughs) whatever already read it but Uh, but i will agree with you i thought it was hard to get into in the beginning and i was glad we picked this book because i had read the first essay a couple times and she packs so much into her writing that it's hard to really take the time to process it. And I think we talked last week about how when I read books and I'm reading so many of them, I have to skim very quickly through them. Mm. And this was a perfect example of a book where you have to like stop what you're doing. Yeah. You have to put on the ambient music, nothing with lyrics and like really focus on like what she is saying. Totally. Do you have the thing where sometimes you'll be reading and your mind will start thinking about something else and all of a sudden you'll look down and you'll be like, how am I three pages ahead? Always. This book, I kept having to go back because I kept having that where like my mind would wander about the grocery list. Yeah. And then I'd read a sentence and be like, and she'd be, and it would be like, and that's how come, da 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 da. And I'd be like, wait, what? Because I think she does a really good job of talking about these really powerful big ideas, mm-hmm. but then also bringing it back to her own life yes. and how it relates to her on a very micro level. Totally. And so you're like, wait. We were just talking about you and your partner and all of a sudden like – but you're espousing on these enormous ideas that yeah. like, I'm not focused on. She does do a great job of bringing – taking the big and the small yeah. and bringing them together. And I think that that's – I mean I'm not a writer at all. I think it's hard to do well as a reader. Yeah. Like I often think people try it and I'm like, no, did not land. Right. But it did. Though I think getting used to her style was what was hard for me in the beginning. And what about her style? I I mean, I don't I don't think of myself as being a very smart person. I don't think that I'm dumb, but I don't right. think of myself as being like a very intellectual person. I think that for the most part, I think of myself as being like I'm intelligent. I read a lot. I pay attention to the news, like I'm informed. I have a point of view. Yeah, but I don't necessarily think I'm smart. Or I don't know. And I don't, I'm not saying that for people to be like, "No, you're so smart." Like right. I'm not that's just <laughs> not my own personal view of myself. I think that I'm well-rounded. And so I think that her writing style is very New Yorker-y in the sense that it's a lot of moving parts and you really have to be focused and the language is kind of heightened. And that's just not something that I generally don't read that way. I like to read read things where people are writing as if we're having a conversation. And this is kind of like a little bit heightened. I think it, and I agree with you. I, I think it was a little intimidating for me because I, I also don't think of myself as that smart, yeah. but I'm a hard worker and I read, right. 
Um, and I, it was intimidating. I think that she is just a really interesting writer and you really have to take the time to focus on what she's talking about. And sometimes my brain is not working as fast as she is writing. And it's like, right. it, it was an interesting book. And it's one of the, I probably would count it as one that I am proud that I read yeah, this year totally. that we got through and were able to discuss. So. Yeah. It's kind of like when there are writers that are, that I think of as being smart and I would include her in that, yeah, I would include sure. like ta Coates in that. Sometimes it's almost like, I feel like I'm a voyeur in their brain yes. where I'm like, I'm trying to keep up, but like doggy paddle, you're right. you're, like gray matter. <laughs> well, it almost, she gets into these parts where she's a little bit clinical and a little scientific mm-hmm. with it. And you're like, okay, like she's lost me, but right. I want to be there. So like, right. how do I catch up? Did you read Thick? By no. Tracy McMullen. It's amazing. It's an essay collection. And one of my review of the book, one of the things that I wrote, and I feel similarly about this, is that she's clearly very smart and she has no feeling of, I need to dumb this down for my reader, right. which I enjoy because I enjoy feeling challenged, but it also can be hard to read. Yeah. So, so in summary, for you mediocre people out there like us, yeah, you can enjoy this as can you. You can enjoy it, but you're probably going to miss things. Yes. Like there's a whole essay that I have literally no idea what she was talking about and i'm gonna hope ask you to explain it to me <laughs> oh, great no pressure uh, or you can say <laughs> i'm also mediocre and i didn't get it um so well let's i guess i so i took notes on all the essays and we could be boring and just go through them one by one but i feel like maybe it would be more fun to kind of go through the ones that really stuck yeah. out as like positive for us and then if we there's anything that we felt like we wanted to touch on after we got through the things that we loved or were excited about do you know? Yeah, you can press that like 30 second button. Yeah. Just fast forward to us. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Do you, did you have a favorite? Yes. Okay. What was your favorite? Uh, I loved the, the one about scammers. Me that too. That was my jam. I wrote down, okay, it's called the history of a generate, uh, the history of a generation and seven scams. And then I wrote down my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So basically the premise of this essay is that, uh, Gia is talking about, scammers and all the different kinds of scams that define the millennial generation. You're a millennial. Yeah. I'm a millennial. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Were you born after 1981? Yes. Okay. We're both millennials. I made it. We made it. And you're not born like after, before 19, or you were born before 1996. Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) We're millennials. (laughs) You're so kind that you're like, pause for a second. You know, you could be just like, I wonder him. Anyways, um, so she pre- she kind of sets it up with uh, Billy McFarland. For those of you who don't know, he's the Firefest guy. If you know what the Firefest is, it's the the scam of the century, yes. the scam of the decade, maybe. Um, and he basically put together a music festival for influencers and charged people upwards of hundred thousands of hundred thousand dollars to go to this remote island in the Bahamas and like be glamorous and hear Ja Rule rap or whatever, <laughs> which like. Be glamorous and hear Ja Rule feels weird. Um, Wait, but the best part of that was, did you see that part where you could, he texted his people that were in his little club <laughs> that they could, for like a certain amount of money, be a lyric in a, a, lyric ja, in a ja Rule song? song. Yes. I was like, mm, okay. In like 2017. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> hello. Well, um, also, Billy McFarlane was born in like 1991, which I was shocked by. Anyways, um, so she starts kind of like, this is this scam. And then she breaks it down with all the scams that created the scam that is Billy McFarland or like what, what culture of scamming he comes out of is kind of like the premise. Yeah. Okay. Why did you like this one? You know what? I think that I, first of all, I read, um, the, the book, my friend Anna about Anna Delvey, the New York fake heiress who like scammed all of her friends. And so (laughs) it's just been such an interesting, it's such an interesting story to me and the idea, especially in our social media culture of what is your authentic self and who are you in real life versus what you're representing yourself on like social media. So I think that I am just drawn to these stories of people who are really hucksters in real life and how they are taking all these advantage of all these people in the social media revolution age. Totally. And I feel like part of being a millennial is like knowing there's a million scams. Yes. And I think we're all scamming everyone else a little yeah. bit when you're like presenting like this perfect life on Instagram totally. and yeah, totally. Yeah. Like we're, we are not only are we defined by scams be, and that's like what we've risen from as a generation, but also we're all like micro scamming. Like we're like into <laughs> scamming. Like I feel like my mom will be like, Oh my God, can you believe this? And I'm like, yes, of course I can. Yes. And it's like kind of amazing and gross and amazing. And that's the worst part though. Like you're kind of like, like, 
hats off to you for yeah, like getting like, away with it. I'm fully here for Firefest, yes. Even though I'm also like, how dare you? Well, the best thing about Firefest was because it was, in a sense, the people who were scammed were right. entitled millennials who right. like had disposable income to be able to fly to an island to go to a music festival, right. and like their pain was kind of like enjoyable for like that one minute on the internet that people right. were looking for something to relish. Right. In. Totally. I think it, it's like one of the last sentences of this essay. She quotes Billy McFarlane as saying, we're selling a pipe dream to your average loser, <laughs> which is like, which he put in his promo promotional video for Firefest. It's just like crazy. Um, I just remember when it ha- like when it happened, like people were, it was a huge thing and it was happening like live on the right. internet when people were tweeting and there were articles and, it was just such this fascinating, and I say this word wrong all the time, schadenfreude yeah. about like, I just, it was great. It was, yeah, I do remember like, there was like bologna sandwiches or something like coming up uh, on like cheese Instagram. Cheese sandwiches on bread. Yeah, yeah, and like styrofoam plates. Yeah. One of the things that she says when she talks about like success in social media is that substance is um, like the antithesis of the game. Like having substance, being substantive is actually hurts your social media is like one of the things that she talks about as far as like being successful and like how the scam is to present this thing without having to actually say or do anything. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I do know that you and I share a, a scam book that we love. Ooh. Bad Blood. Ugh. My favorite of last year. We did it on the show. We did it on, we did it on the podcast in 2018 and it's, I mean, Elizabeth Holmes is, she's my top tier scammer. Ultimate scammer. She's an ultimate scammer, honest. I mean, the thing about hers that's so fucked up, though, is that she really could have hurt a lot of people, yes. actually. Unlike, unlike, you know, the fake heiress or... Right. I mean, some of the scams are just like... These are actually people who could really... Right. Been as a result. Yeah. And like in the, in, in Trick Mirror, um, the scams that... Gia talks about the defined millennials. One is the crash, the economic crash in 2008. One is student loan debt, like how that's the biggest scam of all time. Um, the scam of social media, girl bosses. So she talks about the gal from the girl from Nasty Gal. I never yeah. remember her name. Um, and this idea of like Sophia, Sophia, like all, Amoroso. All, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, but like the girl boss as a scam, um, and then. The op- she calls them the obvious ones, which is Elizabeth Holmes, which is just like, this yeah. is a scam. Like, hello. And then the disruptors. She talks about Amazon and Uber. And I thought that was super interesting um, to think about them as a scam because basically what she's saying is that they work outside the convention of whatever the thing is. So like Uber works outside the convention of taxi cabs. Like they don't follow the rules. They basically just come in and they say like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to do it our way. And they destroy the system from the outside. And then the last scam that she says defines the generation is the election of Donald Trump. But Elizabeth Holmes is kind of on like the Venn diagram of being harmful, like student debt loans, like can ruin people's life and also still being kind of like fun, like a girl boss, not harmful, you know? I Look, I, there are a lot of reasons why I liked Bad Blood. I think that one of the takeaways, though, was this woman came up, you know, in an industry where women aren't traditionally at the top of the pyramid, and she was able to fool all of these titans and men of industry and really kind of bring them to their knees a little bit. So in a sense, you're kind of rooting for this person, but on the other side of it, you want her to fail quickly because – She's actually creating technology that is harmful to right, people. Right. Because like she scammed all those rich old white men. I mean, basically because she was cute and young and like had and went to Stanford kind of. Well, she she played off the the idea that of FOMO, where people were afraid of missing out right. on technology that might, you know, revolutionize the right. industry, which is like Silicon Valley right now. And she and, like laid yeah. into that. And because she didn't look like what she was supposed to. So it was like disarming. It definitely helped with her success in the sense that she was on magazine covers and giving TED Talks and really, you know, seen as a revolutionary. But at the end of the day, she was using other companies' technology to further her own technology. Right. Because she kind of does fall in that sweet spot of like, you're rooting for her, but you're also like, please stop. This is making my stomach hurt. It it makes for a great book, but (laughs) fiction. (laughs) Yeah, it would have been nicer if it was fiction. I mean, 
nothing is better than nonfiction that should be fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Truly nothing is better. Um, Okay. One of the ones that I thought we kind of, we start kind of started there was the cult of difficult woman, the cult of the difficult woman, which. um, I'm not stepping in this one. (laughs) Well, no, I just, I thought it was really interesting because she basically defines a difficult, difficult women as women who cause trouble that can be reinterpreted as good. Yes. And I thought that was really interesting because when we think of, when anyone thinks of their female heroes, which I hope everyone has some pop into their mind. They're almost all quote unquote difficult women, uh, depending on who is looking at them. Yes, and I think that that's really interesting that the like that woman, being a woman or being a being a hero or being a difficult woman can be interpreted as good and bad at all times. And I don't think we have that with men. No, I, no, and I think that maybe goes to the title of Trick Mirror is like how women were being reflected versus men. And I think she is the example of Hope Hicks in that essay. Yeah. Um, and think of her what you will. But it was like the fact that Hope Hicks was like this 20-year-old who was one of Donald Trump's most, you know, leaned on advisors and she was maligned in the press. But if had she been a man, she would have been seen as a wonderkind and, you know. Right. One Should of be the, Stephen Miller. Yeah. And I thought that was really fascinating. You know, take, take it what you will. But Yeah. Yeah. The thing that this essay does that's really interesting is she talks about women who have been publicly – shit talked for lack yes. of any, any eloquent language. See, I'm not that smart. <laughs> Media uh, people here. Here we go. <laughs> um, and she talks about how like a woman is unruly if she's too much of anything. So we're talking about a Kim Kardashian, a Serena Williams, a Britney Spears. We're talking about these people that we all are familiar with their celebrity and their demise kind of, or not their demise, but just how they've been like maligned in the press or brought down and brought up. Exactly. And then she kind of flips the essay to be about what she calls Trump's women, which first of all, I think is really interesting that they're defined by a man. Oh, like I, that was like the first thing I thought I was like, these women are being defined by this one man who particularly (laughs) hates women. (laughs) Um, But she gets to this idea of like, we can't even talk about women without being sexist. It's interesting because one of my favorite books this year was Fleischman is in Trouble. And Mm. one of the reasons I loved about it is, first of all, it's written by a woman, a woman, Taffy Brodesser Eckner. Um, And it's, you think it's about a story about a man going through a midlife crisis and you find out that it's actually a woman in the story who is telling her story as a woman through the voice Mm. of a man. And the only way that she can get her story across to people is by telling it through a man. And I related to that so much in reading this essay and that so many times women's stories are through the viewpoint of a man first and foremost. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's common. Like when, when she talked about, um, Hope Hicks, one of the things that popped into my mind is that she talked about, I I think actually was during the Sarah Huckabee Sanders part where she talked about how like from both sides of the aisle, people came and defended her because the insults that Michelle Wolf did were about the way that she looked. And I thought, it's not just the attacks that are sexist, but even the way in which we defend women yeah. is all, like we would never def- come to the defense or like the aid of a man in the way that people do for women, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of anything like that, that need to go and rush to defend Sarah Huckabee Sanders as if she can't handle it. She can handle it. She's a press secretary for the United States of like for the president. Right. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody was rushing to defend Sean Spicer when he was getting made fun of. No, but I think it's so easy in our political climate to grasp onto anything to use as a talking point for, right. you know, one side or the other, which is, you right. know. Right. No, of course. But I think like the, the deployment of the defense of yeah. a woman is part of the sexism of the whole thing. Well, it's like how Kellyanne Conway was sitting on the couch in the Oval Office or that Melania Trump was wearing high heels to go to a hurricane disaster zone. And you're like, if it was a man doing these things, you would never have commented on how she was sitting on a couch or what kind of footwear she was wearing. And that in of itself is feminism. Right. But like, okay, so think, um, do you, have you, do you watch the, have you been watching the debates? Uh, I I dabble. Okay. So like, this is a really benign example. Tom Steyer, who's running for president has been wearing these like Christmassy ties, these like plaid Mm -hmm. red ties. And people have been talking about it. 
And like that is very much us commenting on the way that Tom Steyer looks and is dressed. But nobody rushes to his defense and says, nobody would say this about Joe Biden's tie. Right. Like the the need to defend women is almost like part of the sexism because women sh- can't handle it or like they're too weak or something. And like I talk shit about I mean, I, I commented during the most recent debate that I thought Kamala Harris looked great and I and I tweeted it and I was like, I know this is considered sexist, but I also talk about her policy and I also make fun of Pete Buttigieg's <laughs> hair. So like yeah. it's equal opportunity, equal. shit talk, Everyone gets inappropriate. It. But I do feel like there is this like rush to defend yeah. women when like this person is at the top of their game. They can handle this. Right. Elizabeth Warren can handle this. She doesn't need you. She'll be okay. Yeah, like she's fine. <laughs> Have you seen her dance? She's amazing. You're like if they weren't expecting this kind of feedback, they wouldn't be in the political right. sphere in the first place. Right. And then there, of course, are things that are totally off limits yeah. and inappropriate. But I think like the rush to defend is also tied in the rush to criticize women. Hmm. And it's like all part of the sexism. Well, the defense in and of itself is a criticism, I guess. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. The other thing the essay brought up is can we criticize women for doing something wrong without it being just automatically that sexist? You know, like, have we gotten to that place yet? I don't know. I don't either. I'd like to think that I'm happy to criticize women, you know, on an equal level as men. Um, And when it comes to the women of the White House, I'm happy to criticize them (laughs) for putting children in cages and instituting horrible policies, you know, against women in the LGBT community. So, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that it's like she I mean, so that's really like the essence of this essay is what it, it starts off kind of being like things we all know and understand about sexism against women. And it kind of turns to this like murkier place, yeah. which is what I think made this essay really good. It, it was interesting. Cause I think that like, and switching gears a little bit, the Kim Kardashian of all is such like an interesting talking point as right. to like, she is, you know, the pinnacle of what our social media craving pop culture, you know, community is looking for, but she is derided 
and heralded and seen right. as this, you know, very divisive member of the community. And I thought, you know, there's another interesting critique about criticism and defending, uh, I think, someone like her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and she, in the book, I believe it's, she quotes someone else in the suggested good reading section, <laughs> um, who talks about, it's like Reese Witherspoon, yes. uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jessica Alba. And she talks about how these women are never criticized and they never do anything wrong. And, and she's like, and they're all white, except for Jessica Alba, who's like basically devoid of ethnicity. Yes. Um, like part of her thing is that she's ambiguously something. Right. Versus someone like Kim Kardashian, who is, She's she's white, but she's aligned closely with blackness, and her family is aligned closely with blackness, and and you know her stepfather is queer, and like there's just so much going on yeah. that she is attacked in this way, and like we think of Serena Williams who falls into these categories. Well, and both of them were attacked for you know what they wore, what and they were in the tennis court, yeah, yeah, or what Kim Kardashian wore when she was pregnant, and right? Like, and we don't often see as much of a rush to defend. These women, these too much women, these unruly women. So yes. it is interesting. Like people always get mad at Serena for whatever she's done. I'm like, can, like, can she get, can she get the Hope Hicks defense? Right. Like, what's going on? <laughs> she needs a Sarah Christianers right. to defend her. Um, Wait, but my more, more importantly, are you a Winona or a Gwyneth? I'm none of those. I'm black. <laughs> My God, I'm neither. I'm obviously a Winona because I love a little women. I'm such a Winona. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not a Gwyneth. Oh my God. I Please, I can never. I just can't keep up. It's too expensive. It's too much stuff. Well, that was the funny thing about that when she mentioned that in the the essay, by the way, she mentioned the essay. Yeah. Not- <laughs> no, he's not just coming up yes. with that. Someone else had written an article about like her boyfriend said that Gwyneth was like on his list of people he wanted to sleep with. And she was like, I realized it was never going to work because I'm, I'm a Winona. Winona, which is like such an interesting, pr- I don't, I don't know. I'd like to think I'm a, a Zendaya myself. <laughs> Me too. She's such a babe and she's so cute. She's like 12, uh, but just uh, her hair, everything. Goals. She's perfect. Okay, wait. This is, this is an essay that I didn't understand that I want you to teach me about. Did you understand Always Be Optimizing? It's the one about the chopped salad economy. Oh my God. Well, okay. And the productivity. I can't say I like understood it, but it was the <laughs> one that really stuck with me because I am a member of the chopped salad community. <laughs> I was like, like a car. <laughs> I stopped and I literally read the section to my husband and I was like, oh my God, I'm like a member of the chopped salad community. <laughs> oh my God. I hate vegetables. I, that, this is one about like bar and stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the chopped salad community idea is that like you are trying to optimizing. So you're trying to maximize your time and your value in the world. And the idea of the chopped salad community is that you don't have the time to cut your own vegetables and things right. that you go to a restaurant and you wait in this line while you're just on your phone emailing and you you don't pay attention to the people who are chopping all these vegetables and making your salad and you go back to your office and you sit there and you don't have to look at what you're eating and you are just scrolling through social media and trying to maximize your time while like eating this, like the nutrients that you need for your body. It's like scary how close it is to my day to day life. (laughs) Yeah. This one was not, this one was, I really struggled with. Why? I, I don't know. I just couldn't quite figure out what the point was. I, like, I don't really even remember it. Like, and I just finished the book yesterday. So it's not <laughs> like I read it months ago, but I just, I don't know. I, it didn't leave a mark on me. And I don't know why. I don't know if it, I don't know if you felt differently about it. I think a lot of it is about consumerism. And I think living in Los Angeles, especially like we're hit in the head every day with consumerism, whether it's like people wearing Lululemon yoga wear. And there's a big section about like athleisure wear, which right. is like my favorite go-to on the weekends. Right. And like, I think that I probably Literally lean, have it on now. I probably lean into a lot of the things that I, she's talking about it. Yeah. In. Maybe that's why it's like too much similar to my life that I'm like, yeah. I don't get what she's saying. It's like, maybe it's scary in that like, I am like really a big character in this essay. Like yeah. I go to the Barry's boot camp. I'm optimizing my like workouts and my eating. And right. Like, totally. I mean, I used to teach fitness classes. So like I, this is like very much my life. So yeah. I think maybe I just was like, I don't, I don't get what she's saying. Right. <laughs> like, like what's wrong with this lifestyle? Like, this sounds great. <laughs> this sounds like my day to day. Um, though I don't love a salad, but one of the things that she did point out in this essay that I did take a note on was that porn modeling and Instagram are like the three spheres where mm-hmm. women out earn men. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. I mean, it doesn't, it's not shocking to me no. that it's bought things that involve 
aesthetic and bodies and women's not aesthetic, like your Instagram feed aesthetic, but like the, the visual overall aesthetic, you know what I'm saying? And that also she said that even a social media break is like part of the optimization myth. Like people go on these breaks from social media, it's like I need to step away and like oh. do what's right for myself. But, like that, that's part yes. of it. And then they come back like twenty posts a day. Right. Like let's go. <laughs> I was like, I definitely a know rebirth. that. Person. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I guess this book talking about it is like funnier than I felt like it was reading it. Yeah, like she kind of has a sense of humor about it. I, I think you kind of have to, especially this <laughs> day and age with like the ridiculousness, especially of social media, for, right? Like, the two of us who are very involved in social right. media and like seeing these things on a day-to-day basis. And you just like have yeah. to roll your eyes at some of it. Right. And realize like, what is the effect on the overall universe like right. that this is having? Well, this is definitely like a book for a very specific moment and a group of people. I feel like, yes, you know, like it's like very much like this book is for millennials right the fuck now. Even like, the book it itself now. is essays. So they're like short, like yeah. things that like people with short attention spans in the yeah. social media. Influence. But they're long essays. They were long. Like they're there like were a few pages. where I was like, I, was, I know I kept being like, I'm like, well, where is this going? Yeah. Like, how do I have 21? <laughs> I feel like I got it. And sometimes she would like flip them and like twist, like, yeah. like the, the difficult women one. But some of them, it was just like, they're just very dense. Yeah. They're not like, it's not that they're, they're overly long. I just think there's a lot of topics and things discussed in right. them. And right. It can be a little exhausting, but. It would be book podcast heresy if we didn't talk about pure heroines. <laughs> the one about female characters in books. Oh, yeah. So this one, I understood it, but I didn't love it because I don't like fiction. And I didn't really start reading fiction until – I mean, I, I like it fine. But I'm not a – before Bookstagram, before I started the podcast, I would say 75 to 80% of my reading was nonfiction. Hmm. And so a lot of the references in this, a lot of the books and the characters she talks about, I was like, I'm familiar with that name. I'm familiar with that yeah. author. But like it didn't resonate with me because I wasn't reading like Anne of the Green Gables when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, Same. I mean, I was reading fiction as a kid because – there's not a lot of nonfiction for kids, but by the time I got like into high school, college, when I wasn't reading for school, I was reading nonfiction. Yeah. So this one, it didn't quite. I think if you're a if you were a nonfiction kid reader and you, I mean, a fiction kid reader, yeah. this essay would probably be a favorite for a lot of people because if you're a bookish person, she's talking about books in a really cool way. But for me, I was like, I don't know, I don't know her. <laughs> no, same. I mean, look, I took away a lot from it. And I think that in TV, we're having these conversations a lot about, you know, how are women portrayed on TV, especially for young women. And I know that she talks a lot about like the Hunger Games and Twilight in there. And it's so interesting because we've had this discussion about the fact that when the Hunger Games came out and the books were so successful in the movies that young girls who wanted to do archery, the number of girls who wanted to do archery classes like exploded. Hmm. And like similarly, when CSI was a really popular TV show, there's actually something called the CSI effect, I think, which is the number of women who went into forensic psychology or forensics exploded to the point that like college programs had to start denying people admission into them. So that's so crazy. I think there's something really interesting in the exploration of female characters as they relate to literature as well. Well, and then if you follow that further, what she says in the essay essentially is that female female characters in books go from being innocent in childhood to being sad in adolescence to being bitter in adulthood. Yes. So it's kind of like if you take that like women or like female female readers are excited to do archery because of Katniss. Like what else are they picking up because of Katniss? Right. You know? And once Katniss is married, then Katniss becomes a character in the background. Right. And like who's just settled down now. And right. Kat, like married <laughs> Katniss is like definitely not Boring. doing archery. She's like knitting. No. She's crying into her knitting yes. being like, well, who does Katniss even marry? Does she go with PETA or does she go with um, Gail Hottie? I don't know. But if I was her, I would go with Hottie <laughs> Gail and not Bitter Borefest no. Bread Boy. I love a loaf of bread. That's how you really feel. <laughs> I love a loaf of bread. It goes better than top salad. But honestly, like, Gail, please call me. I know I'm married, but it's no big deal. 
<laughs> I actually read Hunger Games as an adult and loved Hunger Games. Oh, it's so good. It's so readable. And she's got something new coming. Yeah. Have you read it yet? No, not yet. Oh, okay. I think it's going to be on lockdown for a while. I was thinking it probably would yeah. be held close to the best. Um, so she talks about those things. And I think that is really interesting. But the twist in this essay kind of comes later where she talks about how male characters are self-myth or existential they're allowed to be thinking about the world and where they fit in and blah, blah, blah. Whereas female heroes are all about the condition of being a woman. Their problems are all about babies, sex, husbands, and it's all social, all social. Right. Um, but again, I just, for this essay, I think like, I just didn't quite I didn't have enough depth of knowledge to the characters and things. I just haven't read enough of the books yeah. myself to be able to, I didn't probably get as much out of that one as I did the other ones. Yeah. But I mean, I like, which isn't to say you wouldn't, but right. I think that like, I got what she was, I got her point and yeah. I could definitely point to examples of being like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But also a lot of my favorite female characters seem to be different. Like, I don't feel like Matilda was innocent, but maybe she was. Matilda was a badass. Yeah. Matilda was not like some of these other girls. Matilda was the Katniss of our generation. Yeah, she was doing what the other girls couldn't and wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> love Matilda. I went to college with the real Matilda, Mara Wilson. Really? Yeah, and we had the same musical theater class. Anyways, I know the real life Matilda. I also recently watched Mrs. Doubtfire again. Still holds up. So good. It does weirdly still hold still up. Holds it up. should not hold up. Okay, so I have this. Th- I have this thing, and I think it's actually I've read things about this where I love watching. When I'm on a plane, I love watching what someone else is watching in the seat ahead of me. Mm. And I was on a plane a couple weeks ago and someone was watching Mrs. Doubtfire. And I literally watched the entire thing on quiet. Like couldn't hear one thing they were saying and loved it. It holds up even without dialogue. It still holds up. I actually said to my husband, we were watching. This is really bad. I don't know. I might have to edit this out later. (laughs) But I was like, because you know, um, Harvey... Firestein is in the film. Yes. But I always thought that that person was Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I did not know. I didn't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. As a member of the gay community, like that is an offense. <laughs> well, their names are so, I mean, I know now, but like nice. it wasn't until the whole Harvey Weinstein thing like blew up that I actually realized that who I was picturing in my Literally head. a year ago. <laughs> their names are very similar. Uh, gay icon, Harvey Firestein, <laughs> well, who played in drag. In Hairspray on Broadway. Yes, I'm familiar with his Harvey voice. I, I have the original Broadway recording. Right. I just didn't... Their names are very similar. All right. All Anyways, right. that being said, I'm glad that I could still like Harvey Firestein and still watch the movie yes. and not feel like... You can still enjoy Mrs. <laughs> Doubtfire without being a bad person. But I also thought it was weird that that person was assaulting women, which was also part of it. I was like, I didn't know he liked women. <laughs> Anyways. I'm so confused. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. Uh, it, there's a lot. Okay. There's two more essays that I really want to talk about. One is We Come From Old Virginia, which is the one about about the Virginia uh, UVA. So Gia went to UVA, University of Virginia. Um, It's the university started by Thomas Jefferson, who, if you're not familiar, he's got a history of being a very famously important man to this country and also having had having raped his slave Sally Hemings and somehow turned that narrative into a love story. Um, and so that's part of the device of this, of this essay. And then it really focuses on the Rolling Stone article about a gang rape at university of Virginia in 2013 or 14 and how that ended up being debunked and how it was kind of shoddy journalism. And it's just a really, it's a complicated essay. I think it's probably the most complicated of the book. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, she had firsthand knowledge of it because she went to the college and I think that she was writing about it in some kind of aspect when it was going down and it was a controversial article at the time because of that. Um, But I think it also brought up a lot of interesting points about rape culture, especially on college campuses Yeah, and the, you know, the effect that fraternities and the Greek system has on a college campus and I had firsthand knowledge of that as the president of my fraternity at a, oh. at a party school. So I what school can you say Michigan State? Oh, okay, yeah. So um, the Spartans, exactly. Go green. Yeah. So first of all, I'm going to recommend two things that I think are more 
eloquent and uh, better done than whatever I'm getting ready to say. One is Missoula, which is by John Krakauer. It's all about campus rape. Um, he's one of my favorite authors. If you're listening to this podcast and you've listened to any other episode before this one, I've probably recommended something by him. Um, but it's about college, college campus rape and assault. It's set at University of Montana in Missoula. So that's why it's called Missoula. But the other thing I'm going to recommend is uh, a recent episode of the podcast, Still Processing. The episode is called Wake. It's about a lot of things, but they talk a lot about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And and so just those are two good things kind of to frame this conversation if you're interested in more. Um, one of the things that Gia Tolentino talks about in this is how the language that we use around rape and the language in the essay or in the article is the same kind of language. Like the the girl, Jackie, the woman, Jackie, who was assaulted at the University of Virginia, she talks about how she wanted to back out of the essay and the other woman who wrote the essay was like, you can't, it's too late. And like this kind of coercion that happens both in journalism, especially when it comes to like sourcing um, these like explosive things. I thought it was really interesting that she compared that to the language that we often hear about rape and assault, where it's like, no, you didn't say no. Like, yeah. I, th- I just, I thought that was such a uniquely, I'd never heard it kind of laid out so expre- explicitly. I, I think that you could kind of see that it, and just, this is just from my viewpoint from reading the essay, it seemed like the journalist almost had an agenda back in the day because she had done several other reports about mm-hmm. sexual assault. I think like, maybe in the armed forces and maybe somewhere else. And I think that, you know, she was really pushing a bit of an agenda about sexual assault, you know, in the, in the climate, in the world. And while it was definitely happening, it felt like she was kind of pushing this forward any way possible to make it a bigger story, which isn't to say it's not, but I think the way she went about it, like, I think, you know, she interviewed the roommates of the girl and they were like, we support, we supported her. And it wasn't that we support the statement she's making. It is just like we supported her when it happened as right. like friends and like advocates for her. Right. And you're right. Like it did seem like the the journalist had – she was trying to get us to hashtag me too yeah. in 2014. Yeah. And she did it in a way that was dishonest and therefore it backfired. Right. I, it, like it, And it sounded like an incident did, did take place that yeah. was inappropriate and – it definitely happens on college campuses. It just sounds like the way she went about it was a little sloppier than probably it should have been done. Right. And and what that leads to, which we see a lot with rape accusations or sexual assault accusations, is that the lying, the the very few times that it happens where someone has lied about it is able to overtake all the times that it happens where people yeah. feel scared to come forward or they do come forward and they're disregarded or they do come forward and the person's found not guilty or whatever it is. And it's like we have these few, so few examples of the lying yeah. about it that it those become the things that everyone wants to hold on to, which is how we get in a situation where we have Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, where it's like people can say, oh – it's just as bad. She could be lying. We're going to ruin this man's life. And it's like, nobody, like it's so few people who lie about it. And that's the thing that's so devastating when these, when it comes out that it, that there's not truths and something that gets so much attention. Like what are, what do the women have to benefit from knowing the history of, of public accusations? What do they have to benefit from coming forward? Nothing. Right. They're maligned. A lot of the times, especially from this essay in colleges, when it happens, the, the student who, the student who is accused ends up, you know, there's little to no punishment. Right. It's like Other, a six month suspension. Right. Like I think it was terrifying that they were like people who cheat on tests are like expelled from school, like more often than someone who was accused of like yeah. sexual assault on college yeah. campus. Yeah. So Gia references an article by a woman whose last name is Shambalane, and I'll try to find it and link to it in the show notes. But there's a quote that I thought was just like, it kind of like took my breath away. It's about why this woman thought that Jackie might have fabricated part of her story. And she says, this is the story I've come up with about the story Jackie told. She did it out of rage. She had no idea she was enraged, but she was. Something had happened and she wanted to tell other people so that they would know what happened and how she felt. But when she tried to tell it, maybe to somebody else, maybe to herself, 
the story had no power. It didn't sound in the telling anything like what it felt like in the living. It sounded ordinary, mundane, eminently forgettable, like a million things that had happened to a million other women. But that wasn't what it felt like to her. And I just thought that was so, I've never actually heard anyone kind of articulate how and why these stories can be falsified or blown out of proportion. But it's very clear that something did happen to Jackie and what it is obviously isn't what. Her sexual assault just wasn't sensational enough as it was. Right. And so she. So gross. Yeah. it's. I mean, exactly. Like it's like that it has to be. It has to be bigger than life for it to match the way that it feels to someone. And I think like that is really devastating. Like when you think about, when you think about what that means and how it affects women coming forward and reporting based on, you know, the examples of the past, like what is the benefit of doing that? And I thought it was also scary. And this is like probably, I think it was in the 1970s, like the solutions to like sexual assault, because I think like UVA was like, the most instances of rape on a campus or like that. And they were like, the solutions are like the women have to like walk in groups or they have yeah. to like be in their dorms by midnight. And I love like the solutions are like what women need to what do instead of do. like what, what men should be doing right. like, to like prevent right. that from happening. Right. And like also the other thing that this book talks about a ton is the gender norms yeah. and UVA specifically and like how only fraternities can throw parties there. Was that the same at yeah. Michigan State? I didn't. So I went to NYU. Yeah. We don't really have Greek culture. I didn't know that that was a thing that only fraternities can yeah. throw parties. It was only the sororities at Michigan State were not allowed to have parties at their houses. I mean, that feels like a way to make yeah. it safer just in and of itself for women is let it be on their own turf. I mean, look, I think that she brought up an interesting thing in the essay, which was men join these fraternities and they have to do these overt examples of heterosexuality to be, to feel like they are part of this community. Right. And that in and of itself kind of leads to these assaults and things happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's all so fucked up and tied up in so many different layers, which is why I feel like I said this one is like probably the most complicated of all the essays in the book, because she's really sifting through a lot of stuff. Well, I think like when it happened, it was, I think it was probably probably five years ago. Like the story was so much more about the Rolling Stone article being wrong and the, and the journalist being wrong and the woman not telling the full truth. But at the end of the day, like there was probably a sexual assault here and right. we're talking about the women who lied versus like right. sexual assault on a college campus and someone, you know, right. being really. And we always injured. talk about how, Oh, this woman lied. The poor, the poor men, how terrible it must be for them to have been falsely accused. And like, yeah, it's shitty to be falsely accused of anything, yeah. but what about all the women who it really did happen to that we're disregarding and we're not taking seriously? Like their lives are also ruined. Yeah. It's just, I mean, this is, we're not saying anything new here. No, but I thought that she did a nice job with this essay of, you know, bringing to light something that I don't think is discussed all the times, especially today in the conversations we're having about this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think what we talked about, she said last week a bunch, and I haven't read it yet, but I know that I believe Rebecca Traster wrote an article recently that talked about what has become of a lot of the women who have come forward in their workplaces about like Me Too, um, Me Too related offenses and how a lot of them have have since been forced out of their workplace or have quit because it's become untenable or their stories have been used to manipulate situations um, and the women themselves have been completely forgotten or treated badly after the fact and we don't even really talk about these whistleblowing women who are who are doing this work on ground levels like at at a mcdonald's or at the fedex store or you know, at an accounting firm. Well, and even at a higher level, you're like, so many of the articles are about, should the men be given a second chance? And is there, you know, does Matt Lauer get another chance or Charlie Rose? Should they be able to report again? Not like, well, what's going on with the women and how are they? And and have they been given their jobs back? Yeah. Like, have they been promoted? Have they been given opportunities that they lost out on because they decided not to give someone a blow job, (laughs) you know, like, right. Like, the thing about the Harvey Weinstein thing is that he was using his power to hold women back and down and not give them opportunities. So where are those women and have they been given the opportunities now that we know who they are? Yes. And I think that it just goes to show these women were so afraid to come forward in the first place because they were there was fear of being 
blackballed, especially in the, in the entertainment industry for never right. being able to get a job again, because right. they upset this, you know, the Apple card as it is. And I think that that, you know, while we would like to think that things have changed in the new era, the scary thing is, I don't know if things really have as much. I don't know if they have, and I don't know if we'll know if they have for a while. I don't know that we'll know what yeah. all of this means and what it has done and if it was positive or negative or, you know, like I think. Was I, this, was this the essay where they talked about the, the village in Russia where women are like, they run most of the levels of government in this village, but they're still wearing like yes. their skirts below yes, their yes, knees. Yes. And I think this was, and story. they have to be like locked at home at night at a certain time or like yeah. they have like the men like kidnap them until they like decide to marry someone. Yeah. It was either this one or cult of difficult women. <laughs> it was one of those two. I can't quite remember. Where it's like, even when women are finally in control and in power, they are still susceptible to what men want to do and right. believe in. Like traditional yeah. quote unquote heterosexual gender norms. Yeah. This is gender bullshit. Okay. The last essay I want to talk about just really briefly, only because you're a newlywed. Yes. Is Ivy Dread, oh, which God. is about, it's mostly about gender norms in heterosexual marriages. Yeah. But I thought this one was really fun. I loved it. It's I a good really like this one. Yeah. Um, I thought it was crazy. She said that men weren't wearing wedding rings until the 1940s. I know. I never knew that, that that's how that came about. I didn't either. Where men were wearing wedding rings because they were going off to war and it was a symbol of their marriage and the woman they right. left at home. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a lot to talk about in this one, but I just I just really like this one. I just wanted yeah. to give it a shout out. I don't know if you had any thoughts or things that really came up for you. Newly, new, you're what, like six months in? Yeah. Yay. I just thought it was like a really fun one to end on. I think that there's a lot of heavy stuff talked about in the book. And look, this is heavy, but I thought the most interesting top, the most interesting thing she said about this is in marriage, if the wedding wasn't a part of marriage and women didn't get married and have the party and wear the dress and all the things that go along with having a wedding – would women still get married? Yeah. Knowing that, that that this didn't exist, the party or any of it. Well, and knowing that being married for women has, I guess, based on studies, <laughs> proven Bad. like they're going to die earlier <laughs> yeah. and they're miserable <laughs> and they're going to do all the housework and child rearing. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I took a note on that too. <laughs> I wrote weddings as a way to trick women into marriage. Right. Because it's so much worse for them we being both married. Took that away. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was interesting. And I thought it was interesting that she did, does call out in same sex marriages how the division of labor yeah. is more equal even in same-sex marriages where there is a sense of traditional, quote-unquote, heterosexual gender norms, like where there is one partner who stays home with the kids, yeah. even in those situations, in homosexual relationships, there's still a more even division of housework and like uh, domestic work. Yeah, I mean, look, like we're not – I'm not taking on a traditional role of man or woman in my marriage and my husband and I, you know, we have a very – equal partnership. But that being said, I think gay couples are still experiencing their own inequalities. I think that for gay men, especially, you know, there's a power dynamic where the general public is looking to see like, well, who is the man and who is the woman in right. this marriage? And well, the one making more money is obviously the man and the one who is making less money is seen in the woman role. So right. I think there's power dynamics and, and gender stereotypes that we're fighting against as gay couples still, even though we have marriage equality. Yeah. I think I think anytime there's any group that is not framed in the mainstream quote unquote way, they always struggle to to define things on their own terms, whether it's yeah. whether it's gender, whether it's uh sexuality, race, class, whatever it is, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. so and so is a black this or a Chinese this as opposed to just a this. And like as opposed to just saying that you're married, it's gay marriage. Right. Like it needs a qualifier and that so that so that the norm, quote unquote, can understand it as if there's anything to be understood or that it's at all the same as a marriage between a man and a woman. Right. Like it doesn't have to be relatable to you. You right. just have to realize that this exists and it has no right. effect on you in a day to day kind exactly. of way. This is our thing. Right. And even our wedding, it was very non traditional in the sense that it was like, well, what is important to us? And what do we want to celebrate here? And what are we doing versus like, well, we have to have like all these different steps that everyone has at a wedding. We have to like blow the bouquet and we have to have a right. first dance. We have to have a mother son dance, like all these things. It was like, no, like what's important to us at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, it was the people we love coming to see us show our love for each other. But you know, that is what it is. You know, you do what you want with that. Yeah. 
No, I think, and I think she does talk about how as she's gone to weddings, it has changed. Like, yeah. I think she mentions, I can't remember the last time I saw a bouquet throw. I know. I thought that was interesting too. I didn't throw a bouquet. No? I didn't do any of that. We didn't cut a cake. I mean, we had cake, but we didn't do that. We did cut our cake, yeah. but we didn't like say like, everybody come gather around, watch me cut this cake. <laughs> like, ooh. I said, my husband, I said, if you get any cake on my face or my dress, well, it's, it's over. over. It's over. Like, I don't want to be messy or dirty. Do you know how much makeup I have? On we, didn't right even, we didn't even have cake at our wedding. We didn't. We're like, did we don't like cake. Oh, I love cake. We I also had, like, had donuts. Oh, <laughs> we had chicken fingers because mm. that's my dessert of choice. Okay. Um, and we had like mini ice cream cones and like desserts Cute. passed around. Cute. I think like, and I think this goes for straight couples too. Like everyone is doing things their own way. Like people aren't getting married right out of college these days. It's she says even in the essay, people are waiting until. They're in their 30s. And yeah. because of that, it's really interesting. This was a really interesting point that whereas women used to take on all these responsibilities like packing men's luggage and doing laundry, now that they're waiting to get married until their 30s, men are responsible for actually learning right. like domestic responsibilities right. before they head into marriage, which helps right. equalize that partnership. And both men and women are more independent yeah. and stable before they enter into these relationships. I say stable kind of in air quotes, whatever that yeah. means to you. <laughs> but, you know, that there, there's a more – everyone has their own shit that they're dealing with, their own way they want to do things, their own way that they fold the laundry, like, you know, as opposed to – when people were getting married at 20, it was like, I don't know, I'm 20. Like, we'll figure this out together. Yeah. Now it's like people are figuring it out on their own and then joining forces for whatever reasons. Right. That Finding that married. person who has similar way of figuring out that shit. That's yeah, gonna exactly. Work with that. <laughs> exactly. Um, is there any other essay you want to talk about before we kind of wrap it up? No, today? I think we hit like the big ones. I mean, I know a lot of people loved the first essay, The Eye and Internet. I didn't really get it fully. I've struggled through that one. So. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, I think that there's something for everyone here. I think yeah. that I responded to a lot of them and there were a couple of them that were like, I like the points that you're making, but these just don't relate to me. And I think that's the great thing about an essay collection in yeah. and of itself. So, And I, I will probably revisit this in like five years. Yeah. I'll just be curious to see how it's held up, if it's held up, what sort of stuff. I'm nervous to see. Like, I think it's going to be more of a time capsule. Yeah. Um, what we do here always is we always talk about before we get out of here is the title and the cover. Um, so I'll tell you the title again, trick mirror reflections on self delusion. Um, the cover is, I'm not going to describe it. Google it. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. We'll be holding it up in the Instagram picture also. So don't worry. Uh, what did you think of the title and the cover? Uh, I think that I, I like the idea of trick mirror because I think it's a lot of, looking at yourself and seeing, you know, what comes back at you and what's relatable, like the things like the chop salad thing or the, yeah. the marriage stuff or, um, how we relate to ourselves in literature. I think it's interesting, especially in the day and age of social media, like we talked about yeah. who your authentic self is and who you are portraying yourself as and how that's reflected back totally. onto you in real life. So totally. what did you think? Um, I agree. I think the title is really good. I also think it's really catchy. Yeah. Uh, which oftentimes I think sometimes a title can be good and can be right on, but isn't necessarily like doesn't really hook you. And yeah. I think this title does both. As far as the cover for me, I like the cover, but I don't think the cover is the book. It's like a it's, it's really seventies. Like it's like it's a, playing a playing card, card, right? Yeah, but the font feels like super seventies to me. It feels yeah. very retro, and I don't feel like this book is retro at all. No. And so I was kind of like before I started reading it, I didn't really know what to expect because I kind of thought it was going to be her reflecting on the past more and not so much talking about the current moment. Yeah. So I thought it would be more about the past. Yeah. Interesting. I like the cover. Like I visually think it's cool looking, but yeah. I don't know if the cover is connected to the book as much as I would like it to be. I don't think if you saw the book on a shelf in the bookstore, you would be like, oh, what's that? I need to see more about it. But that being said, that's why we're doing the podcast yeah. on it because we want, I think that more totally. people should be reading this kind of book. Totally. Yeah. We talk a lot about covers in relationship to what's inside the book yeah. on the show. And I think that sometimes I think a cover is ugly. And sometimes I think a cover is beautiful and I don't always think that that matches what's in the book. And in yeah. this case, I actually really like the cover, but I don't think it matches what's in the pages. Interesting. And then sometimes I think a cover is way better than the book. <laughs> That's happened. I'm just going to look at the cover. I'm like, this cover is amazing. And yes. then I read the book and I'm like, this book it does not deserve this cover. Us you... bookstagrammers yeah. love a good cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Anything else you want to say? No, I feel like I've 
I've blathered on just enough today. I think, me too. I think we've done a great, a good enough us job. Us mediocre people. Uh, yeah, us idiots trying to talk about smart people. Um, well, that is Jordan. You guys can find him. I'll link to his social media in the show notes. Uh, again, the book today was Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. Um, it's out in the world. You can get it wherever you like to get your books. And Jordan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me again. Yay. And we will see you guys in the stacks. All right, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Jordan Moblo for being our guest. I'd also like to say thank you to the folks at Random House for sending us a copy of Trick Mirror. You can find everything we discussed on today's episode in the link in the show notes. Make sure to get your book recommendation read on air by sending us an email at askingthestacks at gmail.com. For more from The Stacks, please follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Make sure you are subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 